that's always a joy. <laughs> well, good morning again, and welcome. We are starting our time of extended Advent. Rather than the regular four weeks, we celebrate it, we anticipate eight weeks. Um, It fits our rhythm as a church, and honestly, I think it helps us and helps me eliminate hurry from my life. And we are starting a new series in Isaiah. And I have to say that some of my favorite passages in Scripture come from Isaiah. The passages that I turn to again and again in times of difficulty and also in times of joy. But excuse me, I have not studied Isaiah. I have found that book intimidating. I find Isaiah's poetry and prophecy daunting and confusing. And aside, I find English poetry daunting and confusing. Mark loves poetry, and there'll be times where he will be excited, and he'll say, listen to this, and he'll read it to me, and I am blank face, and I say, what does that mean? Um, So thus far, I have succumbed to the idea that Isaiah is a mountain that's too hard for me to climb. So I have appreciated the push onto this path. I've needed it. And it has been really good to struggle with Isaiah, and it is a struggle. I particularly have enjoyed nerding out on the historical details that surround the book of Isaiah. It has been a joy to to see how the puzzle pieces of the different stories that I grew up with actually kind of fit together in this timeline around Isaiah's life and ministry. And it's been neat to see how this book fits into God's larger narrative. And so to that end, I would like to briefly anchor Isaiah into God's larger story. So the context for the book of Isaiah and its place in Israelites' history, we're going to go through it quick, so buckle in. Um, The Israelites had been in the promised land for about 700 years by the time Isaiah came onto the scene. So the first 400 years, it was a time of, of settlement and conquest as Israel moved into the promised land. And then that overlapped with the time of Judges, where we had Gideon and Samson and Deborah, and Samuel at the end. Now then, starting in 1050 BC, there's about 100 years of a united kingdom. That 100 years included Saul, David, and Solomon. And then after that, we get into the divided kingdom. And there was a northern kingdom of Israel and a southern kingdom of Judah. And you can read about the accounts and the goings-ons in First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles and Samuel as well. 
So now Isaiah entered into his ministry, was called into his ministry at the time of King Uzziah, at the end of his reign. So that's about 200 years into this divided kingdom, northern kingdom, southern kingdom. And Isaiah was dealing mainly with the southern kingdom, the kings there, Uzziah, Jotham, if I say these correctly, um, Ahaz, and then Hezekiah at the end. So during those four kings, Isaiah was ministering. Now this period during um, a little bit before and, and during Isaiah's ministry, this period has relative peace and prosperity. There were conflicts that we read about, but overall there was an expansion of territory for the kingdoms, and there was also an expansion of trade with other, um, with other kingdoms as well. So this background, I think, helps in understanding the scathing rebukes that Isaiah had for the people as they put their trust in wealth, as they put their trust in political alliances, um, and as they put their trust in the power that treaties might bring for them. There was also, as a side note, an increase in writing at this time. There were treaties that were written and then communicated, brought to different kingdoms. And there was also an increase of, of literacy in the populace. And the, th the reason that's kind of interesting is Isaiah is the first prophet that actually spoke and wrote. Um, Elijah and Elisha, we don't have writings that they, they did, but for Isaiah, we do. And that was a trend for the 8th century prophets. So as we go through Isaiah, and as we read through it uh, as a church over these next eight weeks, be assured that it is a hard book. And as I have spent time in the commentaries, it is a hard book. We are in good company. But the struggle is worth it as we learn more about our God and as more is revealed to us about his character and his person. Now, our series is going to focus specifically on Isaiah 40. That's jumping right into the middle of the book. So, in preparation for this sermon, I read through chapters 1 through 39 this past week. And I was struck with, I don't know if, struck with the back and forth of Isaiah's writings and Isaiah's sermons. There are these scathing judgments and scathing harsh words of rebuke. And then there are these lofty words of restoration and security and love. And it's, it's almost a little bit of whiplash sometimes about how quickly it turns. And I don't know if you had that sense of dissonance, but I did. How do I engage with these quick shifts? Well, I actually felt like Isaiah chapter 1, verse 2 gave me a framework from which to engage with the rest of the book. And so I'll read that verse. It says, Hear, O heavens, listen, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. So this verse 
gave me a parental framework from which to engage with the book of Isaiah. And this verse brought me to the times that I've disciplined my children, particularly when they were young and when they were little. So I would put them into time out. I pronounced a harsh judgment. And at that time of judgment, and, and after, I mean, sometimes in the middle, but after the judgment, they needed reassurance. I could tell they needed to know that I still loved them. And that this punishment didn't undermine my love for them or their security with me. I was their mom still, and I loved them. I think God is kind of dealing with this the same way. These are his children. He's rebuking them. But he also knows that there is a need for security and assurance, that even in the midst of the rebuke and the punishment, he still loves them. And so you have these tensions, if you will, going on in the middle of the rebuke, in the middle of this relationship. So God is dealing with the Israelites as children who needed correction and security, who needed judgment and hope. I think this context will be helpful as we look at our passage today, which is Isaiah 40, 1 through 11. Hear these words to us from our Lord. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling, In the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, and every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All the people are like grass, and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, because the breath of the Lord blows on on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall. But the word of our God endures forever. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See the sovereign Lord. He comes with power. And he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd, and he gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. 
He gently leads those that have young. This is the word of the Lord. Please join me in prayer. Holy Father, the Holy One of Israel, we are thankful for your word and for your revelation, for the grace to be part of your story, and for the love and faithfulness that you have shown to your people throughout all generations. May the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth be pleasing to you and encouraging to your people. By the power of the Holy Spirit, and in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, for Isaiah 40, I have engaged with this passage for years. It is a passage that we often turn to during Advent. But I have a confession to make about this passage. Oftentimes when I have read it, my mind has lingered on the word, words comfort, comfort. And then I kind of garble my way through verse 2, and then I land on a voice calling. Because verse 2 brought a bunch of questions to me that I hadn't dealt with. What does it mean the hard service is completed? When? Not before Christ, surely. Is it only pointing to Christ or something else? If so, what? Because full payment of sins can't happen before the cross. So this week I had a chance to engage with those questions and engage with chapter two, verse 2 a little more fully. But before we go there, we need to go to verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. This is a call to comfort. Now, to understand why this call is necessary, we have to look at Isaiah chapter 39, which we read earlier in the service. Isaiah comes to Hezekiah, and he speaks a prophecy to him. He says, Babylon is going to conquer Judah. There will be a time of exile, captivity, and poverty. And the royal line is in jeopardy. That is a devastating prophecy. Does leaving the promised land mean separation from God? What about the promises of the king, of a king and a messiah that have been going on all through chapters 1 through 39? Are those promises gone now that the line the royal line is in jeopardy? So immediately following these harsh words of prophecy, we have Isaiah 40. We have this call to comfort. Comfort, comfort to my people, says your God. This is a call that is given to Isaiah and to his disciples. And the people are the object So God is saying, go tell my people this. Comfort, comfort 
Now, there is some controversy as to when this passage was written. Was it pre-exile, before the captivity, or was it during the captivity? But I don't think it really matters. Because the call to comfort is embedded in a hard time, whether we're anticipating it or in the midst of it. There is a call to comfort. And frankly, it was a hundred years before this prophecy was actually realized. So what is this call to comfort based on? Well, there's a temptation, I think, to think that it's only based on circumstances, an improvement in circumstances, going from bad to good. And to be clear, there is hope beyond captivity, which we will get into in verse 2. But here, the call to covenant, the call to comfort, is based on the covenant relationship that God has with his people. He calls them my people. And he says, I am your God. Let that sink in a little bit. He says, you are still my people. And I am still your God. Take comfort. You have not wandered beyond my faithfulness. So remember the illustration that I gave regarding my kids' need for reconnection after a time of judgment or discipline or redirection. Do you still love me? It's kind of that question. Am I still secure with you? And the desire that I had to extend that security to them, that's what I think is happening here. And this covenantal relationship that God extends to us, it's a strong foundation. And it is incredibly powerful if we let the reality sink into our lives. So keeping with this parental framework for Isaiah, I have an illustration that I think might get at this idea a little bit. When Emmy was starting uh, seminary, she was living with three gals, one of which ended up being quite difficult. And after their time together, she had alienated all three of the other gals. In any case, Emmy went back after Christmas break. And some things happened that demonstrated some significant disdain and contempt. And we had what we call the stairwell conversation. Emmy had left the, the apartment and was sitting in the stairwell. And she said, I don't think I can do this. I don't think I can stay here anymore. And we, Mark and I, were just like, okay, we hear you. We see you. This is really, really hard. This is really tough. We've got your back. You can leave. Break the lease. Do it. Go. 
get out of there. She ended the call and she seemed encouraged. And I thought she was going to break the lease. But to my surprise, to my still surprise, she went back into that place and persevered. And when I've talked with her this week about whether or not I could use this story, I said, my impression was that you knowing that we had your back gave you the strength to persevere. And she said, yeah, that's right. I knew I could do it. You guys were behind me with your love. This is, this, this is the call of this verse. This is the type of security and comfort that we have with our God. His covenantal love is powerful, and it offers a foundation of stability in the most difficult of times. Comfort, comfort. We are his people. And he is our God. Now the call to comfort doesn't end here because out of the covenantal love flows hope for something better, for a better reality, for better circumstances. And part of Emmy's reality was that she knew the lease was coming to an end. And so God, in, in his grace, knows that circumstances matter. The Israelites could be crushed and overwhelmed by the reality of captivity and the harsh reality of, of having no homeland. And so we come to the next part of the proclamation, verse 2. That tender message. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Speak tenderly to God's people and proclaim this message that this hard service has been completed. That this time of Babylonian captivity will come to an end. That the immense difficulty will not be the end of the story. As John Calvin says, God does not wish to harass his people continually. He sets a limit to their afflictions. God will end the time of hardship. That's the first proclamation, first part of this tender message. The second part, that her sins have been paid for. Again, John Calvin says, God is appeased in such a manner that he is ready to enter again into a state of favor with his people. God offers forgiveness so that the restoration of that relationship can happen. The sins will be paid for. That's the second proclamation. Now we move on to the third. That she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now, this one can be confusing. 
Because at first read, it seems like it was an excessive punishment. Maybe a little more than was needed. But clearly that doesn't fit with what we know about God. And it doesn't fit the context of this message. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. The hard service is completed. The sins are forgiven. What does this mean? Well, the word double actually means to fold or fold over. So one way to think about this is to say that the corners match. It's right. It's fitting. The other idea in this word of fold over comes from Job chapter 11, verse 6, where the same word is used. And it talks about the two sides of God's wisdom. The side that we can see and then the side that we don't. The mystery of it. Indicating that there are mysteries to the ways of the Lord, clearly. So while the I think the real meaning of this is a little bit mysterious and remains so, I think it's safe to say that what God is doing, we can take courage in that what God is doing is right, is fitting. Take heart. You have received what is fitting. And you can look forward to something that is better. So for the Israelites, at the time of this prophecy, many mysteries remained in this call to comfort and call to grace. Even in the hope that God offered through Isaiah to his people, there were still questions. Where did the debt go? How can sins be paid for? And how did the service, how was the service completed? Because even after the Babylonian captivity, there was still hard times. There was more sin. There's more debt. We know there was a lot more to that story. Peter says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come, they searched intently. And they looked with the greatest of care. And Paul says that the mysteries that have been kept hidden for ages and for generations are now disclosed to the saints. And that mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Jesus is the perfect manifestation of God's word. He is the perfect revelation of God's covenantal love. Jesus is God making his dwelling amongst us. Jesus is the one who is the comfort and grace. reassuring us again and again and again of the Father's love, that we are safe and secure with him.
So as we anticipate celebrating the birth of our Lord, and as we look forward to the time when he is coming again, there are still mysteries. There's still sin. There's still suffering. There's still brokenness and and God's discipline. Times are confusing. And they have a potential to overwhelm us. But there is a call. There is a call to comfort and to grace. So people of God, hear his message to you. Your Sabbath rest is in Christ. Your sins are forgiven in Jesus. He has paid the debt. Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for you. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels or demons, neither the present or the future, not any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Please join me in prayer. Holy One of Israel, Lord of creation and history, our Father. Out of your glorious riches, please strengthen us with power through your Spirit so Christ may dwell in us fully. Father, may we be rooted and established in your love so we may be able to grasp the depth and height and width of Christ's love, a love that surpasses knowledge, a love that fills us with your presence. The mystery of Christ in us, the hope of glory. By the power of the Holy Spirit and in Jesus' love and name we pray. Amen. Amen. Stand now and join us.